Okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in the period of the year right now where we're starting the, 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 the race, the march, or perhaps the race, uh, toward Rosh Hashanah, toward finishing the year. And um, we're about to enter into Chodesh uh, Elul, uh, which is this amazing month of uh, preparation. And, and so the question is preparation for what? How, how do we prepare for, for this like, big event? Because we know that Rosh Hashanah has many names. One of the names of Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin, which means, um, really, I guess if you want to get uh, scary about it, you could translate it as Judgment Day. <laughs> it's not quite the grand Judgment Day at the, uh, the end of days, but nonetheless, there is, there is a sort of like, you know, there, there, there is a, a, an ongoing conversation in creation between Hashem and us, and sort of like the new... The new order for the year comes down. A new world is created and a new order for the year comes down. You know, there, there are different ways of understanding this, but one beautiful way that, that, uh, that I was pointed to is from Rabbi Aaron, who, who talked about um, the relationship between an author and his, the characters that he writes. You know, but really, you know, for the most part, I, I can tell you as a, as a writer myself, there's an exciting moment um, in, in the in the process of, of writing something, um, or, or living with characters, where the characters themselves tell you what they want. They're, they're, it's a, it's, it doesn't happen in the beginning. Usually you sort of mechanically put them through the paces of the plot points that you've sort of come up with. But at a certain point, if you write them properly, then it's sort of like, you know something? He wouldn't do that. He wants to do that. Or he'd never say that. What he'd say in this instance is that. And so the characters come alive. So without making too literal a comparison, there is this relationship between Hashem being the author of creation and us being his creations. And when the new year comes around, God wants to know, what do we want from the new year? You know, he wants to hear, yeah, amen. He wants to hear, like, what do we want from our lives, from our personal lives as well? And so there's this divine interaction that comes down and then... You know, if you think of it in, a, in an episodic way, like, you know, like a TV series or something like that, then Rosh Hashanah, so to speak, the new script comes out. The new script for the new year comes out, which is sort of like, okay, this is, this is the role you're going to play in the coming year. And it's based on our feedback with him. Now, you know, so to speak, um, we've got, just to extend the analogy further, um, we know that in Elul, uh, from the sort of the, the Hasidic way of saying it is that the king is in the fields, meaning to say that normally speaking the um, the the king is in his palace, and it's not so easy to get an appointment with the king. Although we know God is always accessible, but nonetheless there's this idea that the king is in the field in Elul, meaning to say that however accessible Hashem is throughout the year, He makes Himself even more accessible now. So if you wanted to extend the um, author-character analogy, you, you, you would say like this, that, that so to speak, like just to put a college twist on it, God is having office hours now. <laughs> Where you can actually go in, if you choose, and sit down and say, you know, this is what I was thinking about. You know, what I'd like to do. I'd like to do more of this. I'd like to do less of that. <laughs> Please, God, create the circumstances that allow me to do more of this and less of that. 
Now imagine, let's say your professor is having office hours and you don't show up. If you don't show up, then he doesn't know. I mean, God knows everything. But again, there's an extra opportunity here, spiritually speaking, where the gates are open, where that feedback is going to be most impactful. And so that's this period of the year where our feedback, so to speak, in our preparation for what's coming is most impactful because a new world is about to be created. That's Rosh Hashanah. It's not just that it's a new year. It's a new world that's being created. And in this new world, the question is, what role are we going to play in this new world? So, so let's, continue. let's continue on with this. You see, there's a direct correlation um, between one's preparation and one's ability to fully benefit from the thing that's about to happen. You know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a, just a, a crazy, silly example. I remember like uh, w- w- when, when I first got married, I went down to uh, the San Diego uh, comic book convention, Comic-Con, you know, and I hadn't been to a comic book convention in many years, and I'm driving with my wife, and it's hours and hours, and it's sort of like we're getting closer and closer to San Diego to this sort of like big event. And these words left my mouth to my shock. I said, I should have worn a costume. (laughs) Believe me. I I was not debating, should I wear a costume? and, And had I thought of it, I wouldn't have worn a costume. But... This level of excitement just sort of like overwhelmed me and I was like, oh, I, should, I should have been more prepared for this event is, is, is the point. And, and so, so we have to have in mind or we have to realize that the, to the extent that we really prepare for a, for a particular event, that we're going to get the most out of it. Um, I'm going to go deeper in a second, but I just really want to kind of try to communicate this point along the way though. You know, I, I put it in a different way. You know, I think uh, in, in, in sort of the dating world, if you want to make a good impression, let's say you're taking out uh, a woman who you like, and you show up and she says, so, so you know, she, she wants to get to know you better and everything like that, and she says, so, so what are we going to do? And you go, I don't know, what do you feel like doing? You know, or how about this version? She says, what are we going to do? And he says, well, I got tickets for this. But before we go to that, I was thinking we'd stop by this restaurant. And then we could even go after the show to this place that is like has the best cappuccino or something like that. That that's a whole different experience. And then the person goes, oh, you care about me. You actually made a plan. You know, as opposed to just kind of showing up and just, you know, lifting up your shoulders and going, you know, I don't know. Right? So, in other words, here you see that the level of preparation that goes in before the event actually maximizes the experience of the event itself. So, in the spiritual realms, this is very, very true and this is very prized by our sages really since the beginning. In fact, it says that that the that the Jews before they davened, and this is going back to like Amora times and probably even earlier, that they would spend an hour before they daven getting ready to daven. 
right? And, and you know, it's, they, they asked the Sansa Rebbe one time, they said, um, what, what, do you, what do you do before you pray? Right? And he said, I pray. <laughs> so, so the idea of, 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 of preparation is very key. Okay, so now let's, um, let's go further with this idea because uh, there's, some, there's some deeper thoughts here that, that I want to get across. You see, these parshios that we've been doing up until now, last week we had parshas Ekev, this week we just did parshas Re'eh, and there's a very interesting pattern that the Chedusha Rim points out. That's the first Ger Rebbe. It says something very, very beautiful. If, if you look, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, um, if you if you look at the, the, the first sentence in, in Parshas uh, Ekev, it says, it says the following, that, um, that, that, if, that if you listen to my commands, right? And, and now Parshas Re'eh says, see, I am putting before you a blessing and a curse. So if you think about that just a little bit, wow, so last week it's listening, that's all about the ear. This week, it's seeing. That's all about the eye. So seeing and hearing, right? Right as we're finishing up the year and getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. So listen to what the Chedush Erem says. It's something very, very fascinating. He says, in preparation for the new year, what we're doing is reconstructing our consciousness. It's a, very, it's a very deep thought. In other words, imagine you've got an engine in a car and you want to clean it out and you want to make it good. So what do you do? You take apart the engine piece by piece and you clean it out piece by piece and then you put it back together again. So the Chedush Rim is pointing us to this, this revelation, really, that we're fixing our hearing, we're fixing our seeing, then we have Parsha Shoftim, which is talking about putting judges on all of our gates. And one of the deep understandings of putting judges at your gates is that the head is filled with several gates. The eyes are gates, the ears are gates, the nose is gates, the mouth is a gate. These are all, these are all different gates. Again, it's a further refinement and elevation of our consciousness. So, and all of it's in the head, and all of it's in preparation for Rosh Hashanah. So, so what, what does Rosh mean, Rosh Hashanah? Rosh means the head. So you hear how we're fixing all of our senses in our head in preparation for Rosh Hashanah. Now, what does Shana mean? Shana means year, but it also has the same root as Shnui, which means to change. In other words, the year is about to change or the year is about to be new. In other words, we're reconstructing our consciousness for the new year to have a new perception to perceive the new year that's coming. Now, let's, let's go deeper into this. 
Let's say someone, um, let's say my wife has a new dress. Now, if I don't notice that she's wearing a new dress, the question is, does she have a new dress or does she not have a new dress? So in terms of objective reality, if she has a new dress, of course she has a new dress. 100% she has a new dress. However, in terms of my perception, if I don't see or notice the new dress, if I'm not aware of the new dress, then it's as if the new dress doesn't exist. So does she have a new dress? Well, yeah, she does, and yeah, she doesn't. Because there has to be a partnership in terms of revelation and perception. Both facets have to be in place for that newness to be revealed. Now, let's link it to the event that's happening right now. Rosh Hashanah, Hashem is going to make a new world. Now, if we don't perceive the newness in the world, if we don't see the newness in the world, does the newness exist or does it not exist? Well, it does exist, but if we're blind to it, if we don't see it, if we don't hear it, then it's as if it doesn't exist. So now all these points come together, which is that Elul, the reconstructing of our consciousness, the reconstructing of our hearing, the reconstruction of our seeing, the reconstruction of our other sensory perceptions in our Rosh, in our head, for the new Rosh, for the new head that's coming down, is all in preparation that we should be able to perceive the newness that's coming down and that we should take advantage of the opportunity to participate in what newness is coming down since we have a role in what comes down as well. So, so let's, let's, go, let's go further into this. So now that we understand that the concept, the importance of reconstructing our consciousness. Let's go into how we can do it, right? Because it sounds good, like, oh, reconstructing our consciousness. Yeah, wow, yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> what, what, is that what, what, what is that again? What does that mean exactly? Okay, so let's talk about seeing for a moment. What does it mean to see, right? So, so there's a teaching. We've mentioned it every once in a while. But I want to give a a new dimension within this teaching. I'll tell you the teaching first, but then we'll go deeper into it. You see, there's a very fascinating, uh, fascinating observation that the rabbis share, which is that if you don't have a particular quality, you won't see it in someone else. So I know that... um, I don't know when or how I did this, but I must have done it at some point, which is I train myself that every time I look at someone judgmentally, like, look at that person, how can they be doing that? I hear a voice in my head that says, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction is, well, I do that, I do not do that. <laughs> and if I think long enough, 100% of the time, I can come up with an example of doing that or something very closely related to that. 100% of the time. So, so when we look at the world, we're often seeing it through the eyes of what we have within ourselves, the junk often that we have within ourselves. And it gives us a very 
skewed vision. Have you noticed that suspicious people are very suspicious? <laughs> right? It's like, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. You know, you know I'll, I'll put it in uh, other terms. Life is a Rorschach test. You know, and, and what, if, you're, if you're not familiar with that, that terminology, um, psychologists have ink blots. It's, they, you see it a lot, they use it a lot in movies and things like that. And they show you these ink blots, and by the way, the ink blots are, are, are nothing, they're just designs. They're, they're not meant to be representations of anything. But they notice, and I'll tell you the history of this in a moment, they notice that what you see in the design is a reflection of what it is that you're feeling. And the history of it, my father shared with me, Oliver Shalom, that, that Dr. Rorschach would walk on the, the grounds of the sanatorium and he would walk with his patients and he would point to different cloud formations. And he would notice that, that how the patient was feeling would be reflected in what, does, what they saw represented by the clouds. So if this one saw, oh, that's a person's head being chopped off. Well, that says something. If another person says, oh, it's a little boy playing, that says something else. And so what they did was they decided to, it was such a breakthrough in terms of being able to get inside a person's thoughts that they institutionalized it with ink blots so that, you know, you wouldn't have to walk outside and look at the clouds and things like that. It was a much more efficient way of, of being able to mine the same sort of territory, interior landscape of someone, you know? So life is a Rorschach test. If, if you look at someone who you don't know, say at a restaurant, who's laughing, and you feel very insecure and you feel bad about yourself, well, certainly that person is laughing at you, aren't they? Because you're such a dullard, right? Has to be. How could it be anything else? And if you feel good about yourself, if they're laughing, you say, oh, that person must have thought of something funny. It has nothing to do with me. So how you feel about yourself is how you perceive reality going on. You see? Now, the rabbis teach something really super beautiful which is that, this is from the, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud in Brochus, it says 1.5. And it says that, if you give me your heart and your eyes, I know that you belong to me. See, the connection between the heart and the eyes is very, very deep. Rashi brings down, and the rabbis teach, that the eye sees and then the heart desires, right? See, your heart is your desires, right? But it's actually, I think, way deeper than that. Because the rabbis also point out that if you look at the actual verse, the Pasuk in the Torah itself, it says, V'lo sasuru Now, if you translate that, that says, don't stray, don't wander after your heart and your eyes. So the word heart comes first and the word eyes comes second. So what that means is, they say, 
If the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. So you've got two dynamics going here. One dynamic, which is on a more simple, straightforward level, is the eye sees and the heart desires. But on a deeper level, if the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. Now let's go back to what we were talking about earlier, that unless you have a particular character trait within yourself, if you have a trait within yourself, then you see it in others, right? But what if you don't have it in yourself? Meaning to say, let's say you don't steal. You just don't steal. You don't. You'll never suspect anyone of stealing. Not only will you never suspect anyone of stealing, it won't occur to you that another person is stealing. It won't even enter into your mind that another person is stealing. So now we're getting closer to the point on a practical level of what it means to reconstruct your consciousness, what it means to reconstruct your eyes and the eye-heart connection. You see, if you clean yourself out, then you see the world in a different way. Because if you purify your heart, then you're not seeing anything ugly around you. You want to fix your eyes, you want to fix the world, you want to see the beauty in the world. You know how you do it? Clarify yourself. Clean out your own heart. Because then if it's not in your heart, you're not going to see it in the world. Now, I want to make a very important follow-up point to this. You see, if you're thinking cynically, you say, oh, I see what you're saying. So, so let me put your point that you just made in a, in a simpler way. If I bury my head under the sand, I won't see anything bad in the world, right? What a great idea. Let me just be blind to everything in the world, and then I won't see anything. Thank you, David, for that wonderful spiritual advice. You know? So that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is much deeper than that. You see, and I wish I could tell you the rabbis. I'm embarrassed that I can't tell you their names. But two sages at the time of the Gomorrah were walking together. And it was right before, it was right before uh, dawn. Okay? Rip Shlomo brought this teaching down and I saw it inside as well. And I don't know if you've had the privilege of being up at those hours, you know, but there's something very wonderful that happens, which is that you see a ray of light, and then you see another ray of light, and then you see another ray of light, and you see another ray of light. And one of the sages said to the other sage, said, you see, this is how it's going to happen when Mashiach comes. It's going to be one ray of light at a time, and then the entire world is going to become bright. You see, let me put it to you another way. There's a story... It's a very, very short story. And uh, I don't remember all the particulars, I'm sorry. But it was a Katzkar Chassid, and he went into a shul, and he 
used someone's talus and tefillin, and he was standing in front of the window leading into the sort of the busy marketplace area. And he was, uh, he was looking around. And uh, he was davening chakras, looking out the window, you know, with all the busy stuff going on. And the person whose uh, talus and tefillin it was said, you know, like chutzpah, you know, he's got my, took my talus and tefillin and, and he's davening in a, like a really unseemly way in front of the, 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 uh, the, the busy traffic in the street and everything like that. And so afterwards, he sort of confronted him. And he said, like, why did you daven, like, looking out the window, you know, with all that distraction? He said, because I looked out there with all that busyness and everything like that in order not to see it. (laughs) You see, there's a level, there's a level where you cut yourself off from involvement and you isolate yourself. And then there's another level where you're actually amidst the maelstrom, but you're unaffected by it. And those are two different things whatsoever. And so what we're talking about, when one purifies their eyes, when one purifies their heart, and they then don't see what's going on in the world, because life is a raw shock test, and they're not just seeing a reflection of their own deficiencies in the world, but because they purified their heart, they're just seeing the beauty in the world. That's someone who isn't sticking their head in the sand and isolating themselves from the world. That's someone who's involving themselves in the world and being a ray of light in the world. And by being part of the world, they're actually purifying the world. Do you hear the difference? A very, very big difference. Very, very big difference. And so, and so that's the purification of the eyes. Now again, let's go back to the way the Torah says it. The heart desires, and then the eye sees. And if the heart doesn't desire, then the eye doesn't see. Meaning to say, if we purify our hearts, then that's going to be what we see and what we don't see. So, so there are two beautiful teachings like that, that, that I, hopefully we can discuss them both. So there's a big question, you know, in terms of, you know, we said that that's how Mashiach is going to come. Just like at the time of dawn, there's one ray of light and then another ray of light and then another ray of light. Each person, each person becomes that ray of light until the sun rises, until the whole world gets brightened. So how does that work? in terms of rebuilding the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, because we know the concept of Mashiach and rebuilding the Temple are, are one and the same. So, the famous question is, Rabbi Chaim of Velozhin brings us, how could it be that the Holy Temple was ever destroyed? If it is, so to speak, God's headquarters in the world, and of course God saturates all of existence, the entire world exists within God, how could it be that the Holy Temple could have been destroyed? Just in terms of the, just the, the meat and potatoes aspect of it. How, could it. how can you knock down that wall and it falls down? How could it be? 
So the answer is because the Shekhinah left it in stages. The divine indwelling presence lifted one stage at a time, and when it left, when it left altogether, the building, the holy temple, was just sticks and stones at that point. And then it could be knocked down like any other building. So how did that happen, that the Shekhinah left in that way? Because we exiled, says the Chernobyl Rebbe, God from our hearts. Because we, so to speak, kicked God out of our hearts. The divine correlation of that, the Shekhinah itself, got kicked out of this world. So now, if you reverse engineer that, if we bring God back into our hearts, we bring the Shekhinah back down into the world. See, now this is an amazingly empowering teaching because the, you know, the, the dynamics of the Geula, of the redemption, are so intense on a spiritual level, on a political level, on a geopolitical level, you know, on a war and peace level. There's so many different aspects to what's going on with that. You say, well, what can I do? Like, I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm not, I don't work in government. I don't have anything to do with anything. And yet, when you understand this teaching, that putting God back into your heart brings the Shekhinah back down into the world, every single person plays a epic, an epic role in terms of the Geula. So again, the point is, is that you've got this dynamic between the heart and the world. The heart and your eyes, your eyes and the perception of the world. Now listen to this, tying these ideas together. Since we're talking about the eye, right? The rabbis teach that the eye is a microcosm. This is in Derech Eretzutra 9.13, that the that the eye is a microcosm of the entire world. Okay? What does that mean? So they say that the white around the eye, that's the oceans of the world. Then the iris, the next ring going toward the center, that's that's the land, all the land in the world. Okay? Then the black part in the middle, the pupil, that's Jerusalem. And the reflection in the pupil, that's the Beis Hamikdash, That's the Holy Temple. So look at that amazing, that amazing map of the world where we see that Yerushalayim and the reflection within the pupil of the eye is the Holy Temple. You know, it's interesting that it's the reflection. This is just me talking right now within the center of the eye because, you know, we have the the temple below and we have the temple above. In other words, the, the third base Hamikdash is here right now. The third holy temple is here right now. It's just existing in divine space. So that's like on the level of almost like a reflection, right? But the idea of Jerusalem being the center of the world, that's the center of the eye. That's a, there's a map of the world in the eye. Now, this ties into what we were saying earlier, that what I was saying about, say, if my wife has a new dress and I don't notice it, does she have the new dress or does she not have the new dress? Well, on a concrete level, objective reality, she does have the new dress. But if I'm blind to it and I don't perceive it, then it's like it's not there. So isn't it interesting that your eye 
your perception is called a miniature of the world. Because in order for the world that exists to truly exist, we're partners in bringing that existence in full revelation through our perception of it. So our eye becomes an independent world within the world. It becomes a microcosm of the world. In other words, our eye is as much of the world as the world is the world. Because we ourselves have to recognize that it's in the world for it to be fully in the world. This is the idea that we're partners with God. We have to recognize what's there for it to be fully there. Now, is it there? It's there. Did God make it? God made it. But God wants more than that. He wants what He made to come down into our heart so that we perceive it and that we live within reality. That requires our perception. That's why the eye itself is a microcosm of the world. So then if you look at the map of the eye, you look at a map of what actually exists, and Yerushalayim is right in the center of the entire world. Not only that, but it says the first physical point of creation, right? Remember, we had the Big Bang Theory thousands of years ago. God created one physical point of creation and then blew it out towards the entire physical universe. What is that little point of creation that God made first? The foundation stone of the Beis Amigdash. The foundation stone of the Holy Temple. You know what that means? That means the entire universe is made out of the DNA of the Holy Temple. We live in a holy space. How could it not be? We live within God. How can it not be made out of the holiest, holiest place in the world? But we have to recognize this. We have to recognize this. Okay, I'll just uh, conclude with uh, just something personal. Um, this is, uh, we've been talking about Parshas Re'eh, Parshas Re'eh is, uh, it's an anniversary for me because this is, this is uh, what I call my, my personal Purim. So you have a concept in Halacha called a personal Purim. That means that if someone ever got saved from something, then they can make that into their Purim, right? In addition to the calendar Purim. And you celebrate it every year, Right? And so I try to sponsor Kiddush or Shalashudas, whatever it is, so that I, I can sort of publicize what God's kindness and, 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 and just, you know, continue to appreciate the, the saving that happened. And um, so, so I guess it was 27 years ago <laughs> this year, they wanted to uh, fire me for keeping Shabbos at work. And they told me that I'd never work in television again and that, and, you know, all sorts of other stuff, right? And I, I thought to myself, nothing bad is going to happen from keeping Shabbos. Nothing bad is going to happen from keeping Shabbos. I might have to even change my career. Could be. But nothing bad is going to happen from keeping Shabbos. And... You'd be amazed, actually, that if they actually value what you have to offer, they will work around you more than you realize, more than you give yourself credit for. 
And, uh, you know, when, if, uh, and I speak from experience when I tell you that if you build an organization and you've got a valuable continuing member, you don't want to lose them. Mm-hmm. You don't. And especially if it's something that they believe very deeply and that they, you know, they're not coming from a frivolous place. You know, I need more time to get drunk and lie on the sidewalk. <laughs> well, you know what, maybe I'm not going to assent to that request. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I want to be with my family and just connect with, you know, just what's most important. And they go, okay, you know, we can, you know what, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that, and we'll make it work for you. And it's especially meaningful to me because you know, the way Parshas Re'eh lays out, it's the, which is the, you know, the week that it happened, it says, the first line of the Parsha is, see, I put before you a blessing and a curse. And it's like a fork in the road, if you will. And I felt like at that point in my life, I was at that fork in a road. You know, I had an opportunity to sort of like try to, try to do what was most important or what I felt was most important. And, uh, and thank God I, I, you know, there was a test there, but, but, but it really worked out and I'm I'm so grateful. And I, I think it's the best decision I ever made in my entire life. I really do. And it's been such a source of blessing for me. I can't, I can't, my family, I can't even tell you. And, uh, you know, just say one thing, which is that I guess I was 24 when I made that decision. And, and uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about life. And I, I, I was very privileged. I, you know, we didn't grow up rich or anything like that, but I, I was very privileged in that I set certain goals for myself and, and I was able more or less to, to, to achieve them. And what, what I was able to do then from the standpoint of being in these various places was to extrapolate based on what I was seeing and see what, where the rest of life was going. So in other words, you know, I was able to go to some fancy parties. And so it's sort of like, okay, this is good, but this is about as fancy as a party gets. (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe they'll serve more expensive liquor, but this is pretty good liquor. You know, I mean, this is pretty much what it's going to be. You know, maybe it's going to be in a bigger house. But this house is pretty big, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty nice. You know, maybe that car will cost more money, but this car is a pretty nice car. <laughs> you know, in other words, so, you know, so you, after a certain point, if you've seen a certain amount of life and you extrapolate and you say, okay, so what am I trading and what am I going to get by staying on this road? And what am I going to get if I go on this road? If I stay on this road, maybe I'll get to 
slightly fancier parties, slightly bigger houses, right? Slightly nicer cars, right? It's possible. But that's pretty much, you know, you have something in economics called the law of diminishing return, where you pretty much see the ceiling of something. And then you say, well, what if I go on this road? What's, what's on this road? Um, well, eternal bliss. <laughs> right? Dimensions higher in terms of the revelation of divine light and pleasure? Really? Honestly? Right? Because it says that one moment, if you gather all of the moments of pleasure in this world, it can't compare to one moment of pleasure in the next world. And then if you understand that God is infinite and every level that you go up in terms of the next world, in terms of based on your work and your devotion in this world, is a completely different quantum level of divine revelation and exhilaration. So it's sort of like, okay, so on the one hand I have the Johnny Walker black could be Johnny Walker blue, right? Or, you know, <laughs> forever. And the sages tell us to think in those terms. This is not just me talking. The sages say, measure the cost of an Avera versus the cost of a mitzvah in Pirkei Avos. So we're supposed, to, we're supposed to think like this. We're supposed to think like this. And, um, you know, I just conclude with one last thing, which is that I was thinking about it, and I was so fortunate in that, you know, I grew up on 79th Street and, and Broadway, and outside my window I could see Reb Shlomo Karlovach Shul, and I started going there when I was 14, and... And he was like a father to me, you know? And I was able to really just experience Torah in the way that he communicated it, with which was with so much love and with so much depth. And just, it was just, it, there, there was so much trans, transcendence and so much, there was such paradise to it. And as I went through life and I, and, and I, I, I got to certain places, I, I, you know, I realized that as, as good a time as I was having, and as, as much as I was enjoying all these different experiences, nothing tasted as good as what Reb Shlomo offered. Nothing tasted as good. And at a certain point, I was just like, life is really tricky. I can tell you as someone who would love to live in Israel, as someone who would love to live in Israel and would love to move to Israel. Really, I really would. My heart is in Israel, believe me. And, you know, someone could say to me right now, and they'd be a thousand percent right, so move to Israel. Okay, it's not so simple. You have a, you have a family, you have a job, you get tied up into various community things, certain responsibilities and obligations. It's not so simple. It's not so simple. Can it be done? 100% it can be done. 
But life becomes progressively more complicated. And there are certain openings that a person has in their life where they can say, you know something? The gates are open. The gates are open. And right now, those are times to go through. Reb Shlomo said, when the gates are open, you have to go through. Right? So thank God I had the strength. I felt like the gates were opening at that point. And I felt like, you know what? If I don't go through, who knows what's going to be with the rest of my life? You know, I felt that way also in terms of getting married. And I'll tell you, there was a Devar Torah that absolutely saved my life, which is, there was a moment, right, in a critical stage, right, when we were dating, you know, and seriously, where I remembered, it could have gone in two directions, and I remembered, you know something, the Jews were supposed to go from Mount Sinai straight into Israel. Supposed to be just a few day trip from Mount Sinai into Israel, and that would have been the redemption. And instead, they made some mistakes, and it was 40 years in the desert, and a whole generation dies out. And I remember thinking at that point in my romance, that Devar Torah, I said, the gates are open, I can go straight into Israel right now. Or I can roll the dice and just spend 40 years in the desert. And I was like, no, 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 no. And if that requires a bit of a leap, I'm, I'm, I'm going into Israel. So, so Hashem should bless us that we should have the eyes to see the newness that's coming down for the new year to reconstruct our consciousness, our ears, our eyes, our senses, to be able to prepare for the new year that's coming so that we can see the newness. Because if we can't perceive the newness, it's as if it's not there, even if it is there. And that we should also have the strength to understand that when the gates are open, to be able to go through them. Not to act impetuously. I'm not talking about acting impetuously but to have the strength to make the right decisions and to really understand that life has its moments where there are openings and that we should be very, very, very mindful and careful to take advantage of them when they're there.